0: I could see several people not liking this episode. This was done by Stephen Kendall, who you may remember as the person who did the rewrite of *Mud's Woman, since Roddenberry wrote the original script. So Kendall was allowed to come in and do this one. Okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. What's funny, though, is his script was then rewritten, substantially rewritten, it's worth noting, by David Geralt. You're probably thinking, who the heck is David Geralt? Uh He's the one who wrote Trouble with Tribbles. Now, if that doesn't line up for you, allow me to simply say that Trouble of Tribbles, the comedy episode's writer, did a substantial rewrite of this episode, specifically to enhance The Comedy. Because I can see this being a fairly straight, typical episode, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And instead, this is probably the first episode that has genuinely made me laugh many times throughout. It's worth noting that I've talked before about how Trek has a long and complicated history with comedy, and usually fails when it tries comedy. There's an exception, and that exception is Season 2 TOS, pretty much underneath Kuhn. Kuhn had a pretty good feel for how to make comedy actually work in Trek, in my opinion. And this episode's a good example. So is Trouble with Tribbles, so is uh, Piece of the Action, is another one. And there's another one I can't remember the name of, but there's another one out there. Anyways, this is also the last time we're going to be seeing George Takei for, uh, I think, like nine episodes. He he comes back in the later season. He went off to do Green Beret at about this point in time. So we're going to be noticing a lot more of Chekhov in the future. In fact, you'll notice Chekhov has several sections to himself in this episode. That's going to be a thing going forwards. What's interesting is Samuel Metlovsky also wrote some music for this episode. You may notice it as the weird kind of brassy music that plays whenever something's like... You know, it's it's the comedy, bits like, and uh, I don't remember if they use it after this point in time, but either way, one other final interesting thing about this episode, before I jump into it proper, they used small sets, they reused props, and they reused costumes, outfits, for almost all, for basically all of the extras in this episode, which means most of that was done on the cheap, which lowered the price of the episode, which is good. Remember, budget is an ongoing problem. It's also funny, though, because apparently the casting director, whose name I didn't write now, please forgive me, had a hell of a time actually getting hold of enough twins in order to properly do the show, in order to do the androids. They were also very careful and very precise. Daniels uh, directed this with Mark Daniels. And they were very careful and precise in how to sh- shoot whom and where. Apparently there's no real mistakes with regards to the numbering, too, because each of them has a little number label. And so obviously the, the two actresses, for example, that play the two Annabells or whatever would have to you know have different necklaces depending on which one they're playing or even seeing. Stuff like that. But they apparently did a really good job of keeping all that straight, so props to them. This is also the longest teaser in uh, TOS, in the whole of TOS. Five and a half minutes, roughly. And it's almost entirely just the build-up to we're going to take your ship, dun-dun-dun, also I'm an android, dun-dun-dun. Here's the thing. First of all, I'm going to say the second thing I wrote down first. It'll make sense, trust me. The second thing I wrote down was, what is wrong with Starfleet security? This guy comes out of absolutely nowhere and somehow manages to get on board the ship as if he's an enlisted man. And has obviously been here for enough time to establish being a member of the crew. To the point where McCoy has asked him in for two physicals and he's refused. And has an opinion on him. So how the hell did he infiltrate? Then immediately after that, he effortlessly infiltrates engineering. I, for, actually, first he goes for auxiliary control. Then he goes for engineering. And he just kind of takes over completely. And that's just sort of that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right. I keep forgetting how pathetic Starfleet security is. Then I remembered the first point I wrote down, which was McCoy is like, there's something odd about him. We should look into him. And Spock's response is to rib McCoy. Now, McCoy and Spock ribbing each other, that's just friendly banter. But the point is, McCoy is bringing up a legitimate issue, not something that should just be part of their regular banter. And Spock's response is to be like, yeah, uh uh-huh, sure, rib, rib, rib. And then it all made sense how exactly Norman was able to so effortlessly infiltrate the Enterprise. And take it over. Good job, guys. So off they go. Four days at Warp 7. Nobody even mentions that, so I'm just going to let it move on. It, it, I mean, at least have a line about him improving the engines. We did that back in... Uh, what was the name of that episode? The, the... Stupid Machine. The 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 Nomad Machine. I can't think of the name of the episode. Changeling. That's it. The Changeling. We did that back in the Changeling. Whatever. I love the idea. So all, most of the androids speak in a manner somewhat like this, which... Actually, at first, you can make fun of me for this, at first I thought it was just the actor messing up, like not remembering his lines, and I was like, oh, right, that's how he's sounding, like an android, okay. I'm not sure I have an opinion of the end result. What do you guys think? It just kind of was, eh, for me. Either way, I do love the fact that he just stands there right outside of the turbo lift and just, just turns himself off until they're there. God, I wish I could do that. I call that the Sims power from the video game The Sims. Because in Sims, for those of you not aware, you can right-click a bed, and as long as you're not you know, super exhausted or super you know, rested, you can just say, sleep for eight hours. And you know what happens? You go to sleep for eight hours. God, I wish I had that superpower. Because that's not how that works in real life. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we, so You can tell this is a comedic episode right off the beginning, though. It, it is established very early on. If you try to do anything other than come down, we will destroy your engines and you'll be stuck orbiting the planet forever. I actually thought he was going to say you'll be, you'll do a descending orbit. But no, you'll just be stuck here. So Kirk's response to the severe threat to his personage and safety and the, the vi- viability of a ship is, well, how can we deny such a gracious invitation? Do you remember Kirk has gotten extremely volatile towards, uh, just to name two examples right the top of my head, Apollo and uh, Trelaine. For basically the same thing, and he's just kind of like, eh, okay, maybe he's just getting jaded. I don't know. I mean, this is at least the fourth time this has happened now, and his ship is going to be taken over by aliens at least twice more after this that I can think of. So, you know, maybe he's just kind of like, all right, sure, whatever. One time in the future, it'll be taken over by hippies. Yay. This then leads to them going down, and Chekhov doesn't recognize mud. That's actually kind of a weirdly important continuity point because, among other things, it establishes Chekhov's position within when he actually joined the crew in lore. I know that sounds like a strange thing to latch onto, but someone joining the crew in, in real life is not the same as when they've joined the crew in lore. This, there's actually several examples of this across many, many, many shows, not just Star Trek and not, even, not just sci-fi, just television in general. So having an anchor point to try and help establish when someone actually joins the crew is helpful for those of us who are trying to theorycraft or, you know, put together a more complete puzzle. This is one of the reasons I mentioned the Corbomite thing back in the last episode. I didn't think iMud was the very next episode. Because this then makes it seem that the Corbomite thing was explained, and Chekhov simply wasn't present back during Season 1, at least early Season 1, which is when Mud's Woman was supposed to happen. But remember, Corbomite Mover was Episode 2, at least in production, and ergo, in, in practicality, in lore, so... Anyways, <clears throat> moving on. Mud, of course, <laughs> Carmel does a great job with him. I'm pretty sure the only reason that Mud is as engaging as a character as he is is because of Carmel's performance. Funnily enough, I said the same thing about Trelane. Different actor, but same thing. He comes across as just... I, I don't even know how to put it. He adds so much nuance to his character. And, and the way he just kind of stumbles around and does his portrayal is beautiful. But my favorite part is relatively early on, before we learn the the problem he's having. He has this bit where I'm afraid you're all stuck here, and he descends into laughter. But the way he does it, there's that little tint to it where it's clear that he's laughing because this whole situation is just so messed up. There's not real, it it, it but it's portrayed, especially if you're going through it the first time, as if it's a malicious thing. You know, ha. This is another reason I mentioned that a lot of the likability of Mud as a character is due to the actor. Watching this episode, if if you do that trick where you remove the presentation from your mind and just look at the pages, uh, the, the, the words on the pages, what you see is a much more villainous character, far more malevolent and far more uh, antagonistic in overall approach. It is only when you have that wonderful flavor of presentation that we now see someone who is a likable character. At least that's my opinion. Spock, of course... <laughs> So I've had to analyze several things of comedy recently, so I'm gonna go ahead and try to do the forbidden thing of analyzing the joke. There's a scene which, which absolutely got me, and it's, it's, I, I can't even explain, well, well, I'm going to try to explain why it's so funny. It's the bit where Harry is recounting how he ended up here. That's a tale, and he starts describing the whole tale. And what happens is he'll say something, and then someone else will jump in, then he'll say something, and someone else will jump in. And as he's talking, he's giving his flourishy version, and they would give, it's an assumption, but they would give what actually happened, and there's usually just this tone of, "Yep." And then you got, then you got caught, and then your ship was attacked, and there's just sort of this sort of ah, kind of a tone going on for the rejoinders. This is what I call tennis humor, for obvious reasons. But in the off chance I have to explain that, bish, 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 bish. tennis humor relies entirely on the presentation of the actors. The lines themselves can only do so much. You have to have that tone and that body language to sell tennis humor. And 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 as you join, as you bounce the, the, the dialogue back and forth between however many are there, in this case I think it's like four people total, you need to have them be presenting it right, like that tone I just mentioned. And that's what actually lends it the, the, the humor, the, the credulity, or incredulity as the case may be, is they're just like <sighs> almost a long-suffering kind of a tone, I might use as a word to describe that. This then leads to his the reveal that I mentioned earlier yes they're all at my whim and this is paradise and you could just tell oh god kill me no I'm a prisoner here I'm a prisoner please get me out of here yeah you have to admit a paradise like this probably would be hell for most people well let me let, let me retract the word most some people me, for example, I would not want to live in a place like this. I maybe retire, but definitely not live here. However, no judgment. Uh, as I've said before, there are people who would, and I've gotten a lot of comments about this over the years, to this day, in fact, uh two days ago, as of me recording this, I got my most recent comment on my best-of-both-worlds rumination say- from someone saying they would be willing to join the Borg Collective if the Borg were, you know, not horribly conquering, but were willingly offering, you know, assimilation and then, you know, made the process a little less horrible. And that makes perfect sense. So, how many people do you think would be totally cool with just settling here on this planet and just indulging in a life of whimsy for the rest of their days? I imagine it would not be a small number. Again, I wouldn't, but I am, as my own sister has said very recently of me, the most ambitious person she knows. And that's not necessarily a good thing. But getting back to Mud, obviously he does not want to be here. He wants to be out and go and join and be and do. Come on, just get me out of here. He even has a little bit earlier, You're going to love it here, Spock. They all talk like you do. Which gets across the point of why he finds this intolerable. This then leads to a bit of backstory. Apparently, there was a super advanced race from Andromeda... Who made who robots were a regular part of their people, but then their son went Nova, so they came here. So obviously it makes perfect sense that the Pathfinder project finally made its way back into the Milky Way galaxy, but so much time has passed that all the relays have decayed by this point. And I'm gonna stop making the joke now. Now, joking answer aside, as I was listening to this description, doesn't this sound a lot like the Tacon? I mean, obviously, it's not intended to be, and the Takan wouldn't even be invented until Season 1 TNG, and would basically, nothing would ever be done with them in the confines of Star Trek proper. But that was the first thing I thought of. Super advanced race, Nova wipes out their home populace, nothing but left but outposts, slowly die out, very advanced, use automations, you know, right? Doesn't this sound like the Tacon? I'm curious what you guys think, or if you have any other theories for these guys. Anywho, I just, I wanted to share that. <clears throat> So I mentioned the humor of the episode. Humor, okay, rewind a second. There's a difference between a work that tells jokes and a work that has a humorous tone. These are two very different things. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have humorous tone in a work with jokes, and and you can have jokes with a humorous tone. But my point being, I've described a lot of works over the years that put me in a good mood, make me laugh, make me grin, that don't tell jokes and those are the things that are more in humorous tone i'm, I'm trying to think of how to describe this without using examples i'm trying really hard because if i just say earthbound some people are gonna be like what the heck is that and if i just say something like i don't know i'm trying to think of another example well honestly trouble with Tribbles" is another example of what i'm talking about the tone is light and that tone gives it that humorous air rather than trying to sell jokes, like say something more like space balls, which is more about the jokes and the delivery thereof, right? In this episode, we have that humorous tone. Allow me to use an example. Uh, you know, the two women, I forget which models, please forgive me. The two women are there. Uh, we are here to serve you. Uh, will We'd like you to go away. We, why would we need to go away? Because we don't like you now. Humorous tone. The whole thing... He could have... That, that scene could have been played in so many different tones. It could have been... Because we don't like you. Or... Because we don't like you. Or... Um, you know, maybe more of a pleading tone. Maybe just... Please, we don't, Because we don't like you. You know, there's a lot of different tones you could try to pull from a scene like that. The tone they go for is the... And... I'll give Shatner credit. He plays this kind of light tone pretty well. You remember how I mentioned that, uh, he's a decent actor, but probably doesn't have much range? I think he portrays this kind of lighthearted, well, he, he plays the straight man, basically, but he does the, he does a good decent job of the lighthearted straight man that other people can play jokes off of. He does this in Trouble with Tribbles as well, if you're remembering. So he does a good job and it really helps. And they go off. Do-do-do-do-do. This then leads to the discussion, and two things are mentioned early. I forgot to mention this earlier. Stella is mentioned. Note that he has gone out of his way to make a near-perfect re- replica of his wife, just so he could order her around after she bothers him. That would be uh, hubris, which directly leads to the problem. If they didn't have the Stella model, they couldn't leave him with 500 of them. Spoilers. That's also kind of horrible. I'm curious how he programmed that. How much time and effort did he spend on that? Really. And how like that's a unique revenge i'll give you that since it's not her obviously it's just for your own satisfaction so i guess that's not even revenge that's just satisfaction i finally get to have the final say but the other thing they lay early on is we have a lifespan of five hundred thousand years for once it's portrayed as the ludicrously large amount of time that, that is And the idea being that, you know, they're offering this possibility. We can put a brain in a robot body. Speaking of things that people would probably sign up for if they had the opportunity. Lord knows I would. What? Screw this stupid flesh sack. This thing? This is a prison. Okay? Like, I'm not saying all human bodies are prisons. I'm just saying, for me, this flesh sack that I carry around is a prison. That I put up with and take care of because it's my prison. But if I could eject myself out of this thing into something better, I would do it without hesitation. So, looking at this idea, yeah, I'd I'd be super tempted. What they're talking about is very close to full-body conversion. And, I mean, I've played Cyberpunk. Actually, I suppose I should clarify that. I've played the pen and paper game. As of recording this, I have still not played the video game. So you can date me now for when I recorded this. (laughs) Because it's not out yet. (laughs) So... Mud Mud comes up with this big plan. Think about this for a second. Uh, He's going to have a ship, a really nice ship, that he runs with a loyal crew that's loyal to him. And honestly, I'm totally with him on that. Hear me out for a second. One of the biggest problems with a lot of the ships that I want is I would need a crew to run them. But what if I had, like, an android crew? What if I had loyal droids or robots to run the ship for me, and then I'm just in charge of the ship? Now that is a tempting thought, an extremely tempting thought, because you you can't just be, have your own star destroyer, for example. You can't just have your own battle cruiser, you know, or your own battle star, or your own carrier, or whatever ship you want to use from whatever science fiction you can think of. Just think of it, right? Even something as tiny as, say, the Defiant. No, the only ship in Star Trek you can actually run with one person is the frickin' Vengeance, and I'm sorry, that's still stupid. So you have this, the, the, the appeal there is tremendous. Tell me you wouldn't be tempted. Tell me right now, could you not name a ship that you would want if you could have you know, a loyal crew to run it for you? Go ahead and name it. I'd love to hear which ship you'd take. It doesn't have to be from Star Trek, although if we were to pick Star Trek ships, what would I pick? Oh gosh, that's actually a tough one. My first thought is the Dderdex. I love that Warbird. But then I really like the Galor as well. And I'm also really a fan of the giant Jim Hadar Dreadnought. You know, the really big one that only showed up in Season 7. Oh, that's a tough one. Gosh, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. It would depend on what I want to do with it. Like, if it's real life and I just happen to have a ship in orbit, I'd probably go ahead and go with the Galaxy. And you're probably thinking, why? Compared to those other ships, because the Galaxy is a luxury cruiser. You know, hey, beam on up, Mom. Let's go ahead and send you to sickbay, get you completely cured of everything ever, and allow you to live in comfort and luxury as a vacation. I mean, of course I'd take the galaxy. Practicality, come on, guys. Also, then I'd conquer the planet, but that's unrelated. <clears throat> I could still conquer the planet with a galaxy. It just wouldn't be as thorough, and I'd have to be more careful about it. <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh yeah, Oh, yeah, so moving on with the scene. There's this great line where Kirk says, How will my crew react to a world where they can have absolutely everything they want simply by asking for it? We've already had Shore Leave, the episode. I mean, that's that's already been a thing. I know, I know. We're not supposed to talk about continuity in an episode that includes the one and only strong continuity connection in the entire series. Oh, there's other little tidbits. Corbinite. Corbomite was mentioned in the last episode. And of course, there's, you know, the, the two part of the menagerie. But for the most part, continuity doesn't really exist in TOS, except in the more broader sense character stuff and setting stuff, you know, setting continuity, as I've talked about. But Mud's here. This is the only recurring guest star in, uh, well, yeah, no, I'm saying that right. This is the only recurring guest star in all of TOS. There are recurring extras and recurring side characters, but this is, this is the one big one right here. We only see Sarek once. We only see Kor once and so forth and so on. I'm getting off topic. What I really want to talk about, ignoring shore leave, is Earth. It's possible Earth wasn't supposed to be a paradise at this point in history. In fact, I've been paying attention. We know basically nothing about Earth in TOS. It's mentioned. It's there. We go to Earth in the past. But we haven't actually done anything with Earth. Interesting, isn't it? Anywho... <clears throat> So then we cut to Chekhov. I didn't know Kulak could be used as an insult. That's just a weird one to me. Is there something, there's gotta be some historical connotations there if anyone wants to explain that to me. Because Kulak, from my understanding, is just the peasant class who was wealthy enough to, to cl- climb up a rung and actually own land, basically. The equivalent of a freeholder. Uh, anyways. <clears throat> so Chekhov has tons and tons of sex. No judgment. They're androids. Whatever. I wonder what that feels like. They mentioned they have like a plastic shell. That cannot feel good. Ugh, that's that's just chafing, is what that is right there. What? <laughs> and then he, something occurred to me. They've they've tempted Scotty. They've tempted Spock. They've tempted Chekov. They've tempted Uhura. They haven't even tried to tempt Kirk. Now, why do you think that is? Now, my knee-jerk reaction was that Mudd is trying to get one up on Kirk, who personally bested him last time, so Mudd pretty much specifically designed them to not try to tempt Kirk. Unfortunately, I think the answer is a little bit simpler than that. Kirk is untemptable because all he wants is his ship. This is the same problem that has happened before. In fact, Mudd actually flat-out mentioned that, if you're remembering, uh, back in Mudd's Women. He's in love with his ship. And that has been an extremely recurring trend going back to the original generation of the series. So that, that would make sense. I'm just curious. What do you guys think? Either way. The androids then, we find out they played mud, and they plan to conquer the galaxy. This is actually one of the more amusing tidbits. And again, you'll notice how this would be a very serious plot if it, the tone wasn't so light. Really, it, divorce yourself from the humor. The light tone, the comedic presentation, and the lighthearted music. What we have is a planet full of androids who insist on stretching out throughout the galaxy and using their superior technology and numbers in order to conquer the galaxy in order to force all races into a state of, I don't want to say stagnation, because that's not quite the direction. It's more like a state of, I don't know what to call that. I was going to say subservience, because that is effectively it. But it's not quite subservience, is it? I don't know. I don't know what to say. Gilded Cage, we'll just call it a Gilded Cage. They want a Gilded Cage to the Galaxy. This could be a very serious incredible threat, if not for the fact that this is I Mud, the comedy episode. This is a good time to mention, by the way. Did you know that the executives actually wanted to do an entire spin-off series about Mud? Do me a favor, remember that fact for the end of season two. It's gonna come up. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. Either way, Conquest on a Galaxy Stale. We also find out the flaw of these androids, and the distinction that really separates them from data. Data is a self-contained unit. He can think, he can grow, he can be, he can do. These guys are not. They can do, but anything that doesn't, anything that violates their core, wrong word, anything that violates their surface programming, there we go, has to be checked with some kind of central processing unit, which then takes the serious stuff and then outputs it to the individual units. In short, each unit is more like a a process that is being run by the CPU rather than an independent CPU itself. And of course, we find out this all ties back into Norman, which then gives them a weak point. What's funny is this is a weak point that makes perfect sense. Credit to the episode and to the writers. They have successfully crafted a threat that is legitimate threat, that is superior but weak in a way that makes sense so that the heroes can use it and overcome it. Most of those steps don't exist in Star Trek episodes, if we're being honest. Either the threat is stupid, or it, it's just strong because it's strong with no logic. Or it has weak points that make no sense because we need it to have weak points so we can beat it. Or we beat it without using weak points, and it's strong without logic. So it's just stupid on top of stupid. Voyager. So, yeah. Either way, we have a weak point now. Got it. So then they, they decide to do their big plan, and Uhura <gasps> betrays them. No! This actually makes perfect sense as well. This is also very clever and probably one of my favorite parts. of. The second, I'd say, second favorite part of the episode. Because what this is, third favorite part of the episode, sorry. My second favorite is the tennis match I mentioned earlier. It's, it's a classic narrative trope. It's usually used in a different way, though. It's the unreveal, the untwist. Now, I'm using that improperly, and I, I can never remember the proper terminology, so you forgive me for my stupidity. But what it means is, oh, my God, here's a big twist! Ah, okay, now that we got that out of the way, people stop looking for it. If you do a big reveal in your game or your show or your movie, then people stop looking for it. Then you do the actual reveal afterwards when they're no longer expecting it, because now they've been put off guard, because everyone expects a reveal early on, right? Same application here. They're expecting an escape attempt, the escape attempt happens, it fails, okay, we don't have to stay on edge anymore, and then the actual attempt happens. Exact same pattern. Brilliant stuff, and I love doing that, and I love seeing that in fiction. This then leads to my favorite part of the episode. I have nothing to really analyze here, unfortunately. This is most of the rest of the episode. It starts at 37 minutes, and they just start doing directly contradicting input. There's no music, as she, he compliments the music. They're celebrating their captivity. She strikes him because he likes him. She likes him. I suppose that's not necessarily contradictory. That's up to you. You know, safe, sane, consensual. <laughs> uh, stay perfectly still. La 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 Much better. What's funny is this is mostly just a test run, just to make sure that the theory works. Once it does, then they go full gear. I really love Nimoy's presentation. Because there's two types of light-tone presentation. One is what Shatner's doing. Ha, ha, ha. The other is what Nimoy is doing, which is the uh, Leslie Nielsen approach, where you say it completely straight-faced and without a single hint of irony. I love you, but I hate you. And the way he just absolutely says that so blandly and sincerely is wonderful. I love it. I love it. But she is... We're identical. Yes, that's what I hate about her. Like, it's the most logical thing in the world. This then leads to the final bit, which is the double act. Hmm. Where everyone just starts acting off of each other, and like, Scotty dies. I love the whistling. This as they're all whistling him to death, and, and he just... Wait, that doesn't make sense. Logic is a wreath of flowers that smells bad. Are you okay? Are you taking all this? Your ears are green. This is basically full-on non-sequitur at this point. But you'll notice the, the core trend remains throughout the course of this entire series. Contradictory information. The explosive, the, the, the pantomiming... Mimes aren't that bad. Everything they do in this is, is miming, by the way. I'll just point it out, or at least a form of mim- mimicry, I'm not sure. Uh, I, let, me, let me walk that back. Everything they're doing is very close to miming, or actually miming. I'm not sure, because I didn't look it up. Please forgive me. <sighs> you know, that kind of physical comedy where you work with something that's not there, a prop that isn't there. It was actually one of my first lessons when I started taking theater classes, was learning how to act with nothing in your hands and try to sell the audience on the end. There's there's all sorts of little tips that you do to kind of make it feel like you're actually gripping something real, you know, and you're just kind of trying to pull it, and you do this little shaking thing. And what you do is you build resistance back here in the shoulder to, em- to actually then physically emulate the, the image of the hand doing resistance, and it's just all sorts of little tricks like this. My point is they do an excellent job of it, the whole pantomiming thing. And what's really great about this whole thing is they go through this whole setup to establish that Mudd is a liar. Now, that's actually important. I mean, it's comedic and it's funny. But the importance of establishing that Mudd is a liar is critical because that needs to be an established fact. Why? Because otherwise the paradox doesn't qualify. Because what they actually finally finish Norman off with is the liar's paradox. Everything I say is a lie. I am a liar. Classic, simple, bare-bones paradox. But it works brilliantly if you've already established the liar status, which they do, leading to everything going to hell. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Love it, love it. And and I was just grinning the whole scene. I really was. Oh man. Then then they decide to torture Mud to death. Him going on parole on the planet makes sense. You will be on parole until you stop being needing, until you stop needing parole is the idea, and that that lines up perfectly. And if we're to count TAS as canon, which I absolutely do not, even though CBS does, then this is not the last we see of Mud. So apparently he eventually does actually parole himself off here. So that's fine. Leaving him with 500 of his wife? That's inhuman. <laughs> uh, this has been a great episode to cover, guys. Hope you guys have enjoyed. See you next time.